welcome to One Great 150. Hello. Uh, we're excited to kick this off. Uh, I'm Sabrina. I'm Alex. And we're joined by friend and producer Nick. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Or I guess, like, thanks for listening if you're new. Yeah. We're <laughs> happy to have both of you. Yeah, everybody. It's been a nice long break that we have not taken off. Oh, it's not been a break. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like we haven't even stopped. No, we've been working really hard on this new project for you guys. So, to get into it, uh, 2023 is the 150th uh, anniversary of Winnipeg. It's our birthday. Kind yeah. of. Kind of. Some people are saying it's 2024. I don't know if that's just because they want an extra year to apply for grants. <laughs> Could be. I mean, this way it's spread out between everyone over two years. Yeah. So I think it works out for the best. But the reason that some people are saying 2024 is that Winnipeg goofed up a little. <laughs> okay. So 2023 or 2023. No, people now. I need to make it clear. Yeah. Um, what happened was in 1873, the province of Manitoba signed a corporation papers making Winnipeg a city. Yes. So that's what we're celebrating. It takes a year. I shouldn't say celebrating. No. <laughs> Do we want to start this over again? No, I think that's okay. Good. Okay. So basically the papers are signed 150 years ago this year, but it takes Winnipeg another year to hold an election. Right. So we don't have a civic government until 1874. Sure. So like the city of Winnipeg recognizes the first year that they had a government. Okay. Which makes sense. So. Yeah. So I guess both of those are arguably right. They both make sense. Winnipeg's a weird city in that you can have two technical anniversaries, and they're both probably fine. Sure. And the one that we are commemorating or working up to the anniversary of... Is that incorporation date of November 9th, 1873. Yeah, so we're going to be releasing episodes bi-weekly, um, 16 episodes, with the last one being on that November 9th date. Yeah, it should be good. It's a lot of episodes. It is. And they'll be taking us all the way from sort of like pre-1700s all the way up until current day. We're spanning the whole length of Winnipeg through the perspective of people in the city. Yeah, so our kind of, you know, gimmick here is that we're doing um, 15 people um, through whom we're looking at, uh, through whose lenses we're looking at Winnipeg history. 15 people each yeah. for, you know... Roughly different periods, kind of going chronologically through the city's history. Yeah, but not exactly one per each decade. no. Because we're also starting way before. <laughs> no, we were starting way earlier. Yeah. But you have to. That's how it goes. Yeah. And I think we need to be clear off the top that when we say one great 150, we don't mean great in the like, rah, rah, go Winnipeg sense. No. And we never do with the, we don't mean it with the name of the podcast either. One great, when, one great history. We're pulling a weaker then. Yes. It's weaker a, thans. Yeah. <laughs> pulling a weaker then sounds wrong though. Yeah. There's no singular weaker then. <laughs> um. Yeah, no, we mean it with big old air quotes every time. Um, certainly, there are a lot of aspects of our city's history that have been very not great. Yes. Should we talk a little bit about how we selected the people we're going to talk about? Ooh. Oh, boy. Do we have? Do you have an answer for this? Because I feel like... Well, I think just what I want to make clear is just how we didn't select them, actually. Oh, okay. Okay, so what I want to say is that these are not people who we think are the 15 greatest Winnipeggers. Just... I, I think <laughs> That's, no, that's, right. that's what I really want to be clear. No, okay, fair. Yeah, we're not saying these are like the top 15 Winnipeggers you should know. No. They're the ones that help us tell the story of the city. That's a great way of putting it. And it doesn't mean that we're leaving anyone out on purpose. Yeah. We're not like neglecting someone that anyone thinks is great. And of course, we have a whole podcast. If we want to go back to someone at any point, we can. Yeah, and I think like researching this has already given me ideas about places where I'm like, oh, I just don't have time to cover this. I want to totally, go back to yeah. it. I was thinking about this earlier today, too, about how, like, 
in doing this, we're actually limiting ourselves in a way that I think helps. Because if we were doing like a broader history of the city, what we would both do, I think, is get kind of paralyzed by the directions we oh, could go. Oh, you're right. Yes. Whereas this way we are limited to a person in a place in a time. And we can't like veer outside of that too hard. <laughs> yeah. No, once, you know, for instance, the subject of one of our, our episodes has passed away or whatever. It's kind yeah. of like, okay, no, you hard pass. It's done. Yeah. So we're Except not leaving for one of our episodes where we're going to talk a lot about the repercussions of a person's death. Ooh. So we're not leaving anyone out on purpose. We'll come back to things. Yeah. If you think we should cover something, let us know. We're always happy. And we're certainly not by covering the history of a person um, advocating for the things that they did. No. We're going to talk. We're going to talk about some pre- actually pretty bad people. <laughs> cough, cough. Francis Cornish. Yeah. Okay. Cough, let's cough. just say Francis Cornish. <laughs> we can we're- come right out. Yeah. We're going to talk about him. He was not a good guy. No. First mayor, though. Yeah, so this is significant, right? <laughs> this is this is more about significance, and and yeah, like you say, these are the people who help us tell the history. I think it'll be really fun. I'm excited to fun in the historian way. Where actually, it probably is not going to be super. Where you say I have a fun fact to tell you, and then tell someone the worst thing they've ever heard. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. How about that? It's going to be interesting. I'm and... excited to share it. We've worked on this for a long time. Like we started this project in 2021. Yeah. Uh, and before we get into the actual like meat and potatoes of the episode, I was going to start by asking you and Nick a question. Okay. Which is, what is your relationship to Winnipeg? Oh, interesting. Uh, Nick, do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I came up in like a creative scene, you know, and went to the University of Winnipeg. And like, I'm a Winnipegger, and I'm not someone that looks down upon or necessarily champions Winnipeg too hard. You know, I kind of yeah. ride in the middle of like, <laughs> this is where I am. This is where I grew up. And I like a lot of things and people here. And I mean, we do have uh, great music and film and, uh, you know, visual arts and all the, all this stuff and, and dance and theater and, and all these amazing things here. But also like, I love that Winnipeg is bargain crazy. Yeah. You know, I love that we <laughs> for live better in, or for worse. Yeah, we live in the past. Like it's just it's it's quirky, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Uh and and it, I don't know, I just I feel like I kind of fit in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that's okay. my take on Winnipeg. Yeah, I mean, I think I you know, in some ways have some similar feelings to that, but I started out from a very different place, I'll say. Like I definitely as a teenager was a full like, oh, I hate Winnipeg. I'm going to get yeah. out of here as soon as I can. Turns out when you have panic disorder, <laughs> that's like easier said than done. Um, yeah. And I found it really hard to move away from home. I tried. Um, I went away for a bit. And you know what? I didn't like it that much. No. No. You're I, also in grad school. This is, yeah, that's a really good point. But no, I, di- I do think that my relationship to Winnipeg did change pretty fundamentally while I was in grad school. Yeah, I bet. Because I was in Toronto, which I thought was going to be, like, really exciting. Um, And, you know, I always thought, like, oh, like, I'm a big city girl. And I think what I found out is I'm actually a mid-sized city girl. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And while I was there, you know, I think this happens to a lot of Winnipeggers, that I became a lot more of, like, a Winnipeg booster while I was away. Because you have to keep explaining the city to people who aren't from there, right? Yes. One time, (laughs) someone asked me if I had a loyalty card for a store while I was in Montreal once. And I was like, oh, no, you don't, we don't have this store where I'm from in Winnipeg. And she was like, oh, we have one in BC. So I just... Those are very far apart, man. Yeah. <laughs> Those are not close together. No. Um, no, so yeah, you have to keep explaining what Winnipeg is and what Manitoba is. And also, like, when people put it down, you're like, hey, 
Stop it. Stop only it. I can do that. Exactly. <laughs> That's only me who's allowed because I know about the things that are really bad about it. And it's not just that it's cold. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that changed my relationship to Winnipeg a lot. And um, realizing also that like the things that had made me unhappy when I was a teenager weren't necessarily where I was, but more of my state of mind. Yeah. Having an untreated mental illness. That'd do it. Um, and I think doing the podcast has also altered my uh, relationship oh, to Winnipeg a lot. Yeah. It's good you say that, because my plan is to ask this again in the last episode. Okay. To see how we're at yeah. 16 episodes later. Interesting. Yeah. To see if doing this whole thing changes anything a yeah. little bit. Okay, maybe I'll save that for that talk for then, then. Let's do that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I'm different than the two of you in that I did not grow up in Winnipeg. Right. I am from a small town of less then 2,000 people, maybe around that now. And for me, Winnipeg was the big city. Mm -hmm. Like, if we wanted to go see a movie or go shopping for anything that wasn't, like, something from the MCC, Winnipeg was the fun day trip. If you were lucky, you got to go to Polo Park Mall, which was the cool wow. mall. St. Patel was the mall everyone else would go to, but if you got lucky, someone's parent would drive you farther. Oh, wow. This was a real <laughs> treat for us growing up. Do you like Polo Park? <laughs> it's bigger than St. Patel, I'll give it that. Yeah. So... Moving to Winnipeg felt like kind of a step up in the way, I think, being from Winnipeg going, I'm going to move to a big city. Right, right? this was my moving to Toronto. Yeah, yeah, your sisters made this point, too, that, like, small town people aspire to move to a place like Winnipeg, and Winnipeggers yeah. aspire to move to, like, Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the, like, natural, like, I'm going to move somewhere big. Uh-huh, totally. But I was also, like, raised in a family that loved going to, like, MTC and stuff downtown. Both yeah. of my parents were big fans of it, so... I always kind of, like, knew there was a good theater scene and art scene in the mm -hmm. city that I've come to appreciate. And then I started doing tours downtown when I was in university and got to hear about the city from tourist perspectives. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Which did actually really shift how I saw the city because right. I also was pretty, like, it's fine. It's the big city, but, like, who likes it here? Right. But then you talk to people who are like, oh, we love it here. Yeah. You're like, maybe there is something to that. Maybe they're not just, like, lying to me. <laughs> So that shifted a little bit, although I do find it's strange because at this point in my life, people often present me as like a Winnipeg defender. No, and I like that's not what we are. No, and I feel like I seem to I like the city sometimes, but I have notes is how I would describe it. It's yeah. a complicated relationship, right? Yeah. And I think most Winnipeggers would agree with that. For sure. Um, there are a lot of things that I really feel like we need to improve. Yeah. And but like but I think I care about that more now, and now it makes me angrier. So it's, it's a complicated relationship. Yeah. That's how it goes. So I don't know. Maybe we'll change our opinions after 16 episodes. Maybe the listeners will gain some more insight into the working of the city. Because I know even going back to the earlier episodes we've done already, mm -hmm. I have kind of been like, oh, I see patterns right. in how the city is still acting today, right? Yes, totally. So, with that being said, let's actually get started. All right. So, uh, our first ep episode is being with Chief Peguis. We have the help of uh, two guests in this one, Nigan Sinclair and Alan Sutherland. So, Nigan is Anishinaabe. He's a professor at the U of M. He has a Faculty of Arts uh, Professorship in Indigenous Knowledge and Aesthetics. And he is currently head of the Department of Indigenous Studies. He's a writer, editor, and activist who was named to the Power List in McLean's as one of the most influential individuals in Canada. Wow. He's a columnist with the Winnipeg Free Press. He is a member of the uh, Power Panel on CBC's Power and Politics. He's a busy guy. Busy we're, guy. We <laughs> we're very happy he took the time to talk to us. And 
Alan Sutherland is an Anishinaabe. He's from Sconan First Nation. Alan is presently a member of the Speaker's Bureau of the Treaty Relationships Commission of Manitoba and is employed as a treaty pro- project officer at Parks Canada and at Lower Fort Garry National Historic Site. He's an award recipient for research and curriculum development education, and he is a sort of educator okay. that goes around talking to different groups about indigenous culture and right. history and stories. So a really valuable person for us to talk to. Super valuable person for us to talk to. They were super helpful in sort of shaping this episode, so I'll introduce them before we play the interview clips. I'm going to uh, intersperse them throughout the episode. And just off the top, pretty much all of the research for this is coming out of uh, Donna Sutherland's book, Pegwis, a Noble Friend. Okay. It is one of very few books on Chief Pegwis. Yeah, this is a thing that we often find when we start research, is that there are not a lot of secondary sources. No. So we're very grateful for people who have written them. <laughs> yes, it was very, very helpful. And when I was starting to do this, the thing I kept bumping up against is like, where do you start? Yeah? Where do you start a history of Winnipeg? Yeah, because you've got the first episode. That's that's a toughie. Yeah. And like, when we first talked about it, the like hard date would be November 9th, 1873 is the official date. But the city doesn't like pop up out of nowhere. Yeah. But in the same way, everything here before doesn't pop up out of nowhere. No, I mean, you know, you could start it thousands of years ago. And that's what I did. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about so, the water. So, yeah, basically, in my notes, I was like, oh, like, do I talk about glaciers? No one likes to talk about <laughs> glaciers. But in both uh, my interviews with Nigan and with Alan, they started by talking about glaciers. All right. So, we guys, I'm sorry. We got to talk about glaciers. Well, what I'm going to do instead is let Nigan kick us off. Okay. To understand what Indigenous peoples inherited upon moving into this place or living in this place, uh, you really have to understand the landscape. And so... Uh, of course, Manitoba wasn't always, didn't always look like the way it is now. Uh, this beautiful agricultural um, green uh, space of so much ecology and life. Uh, this was a place that was covered by a glacier. And then before that, uh, the Great Lake Agassiz, which uh, enveloped almost the entirety of the province, as well as parts of Saskatchewan, what's now Saskatchewan, Northwest Territories. Uh, Nunavut, uh, N- Ontario, even down into uh, North and South Dakota, Minnesota. And so you have to understand that uh, this place is really birthed from water. And I think that's a very significant thing to think about because uh, when Lake Agassiz recedes and uh, carves out the landscape and creates what we now know as Lake Winnipeg and the Red River system and uh, Lake Win- Lake Manitoba, Lake Winnipegosis, uh, the Saskatchewan River system, uh, the Nelson River system. You know, like as you understand that the landscape is carved out by this waterway, um, you begin to understand what Indigenous peoples are talking about when we are birthed in this place, when we are set down. And that's the story that we have as Anishinaabe Cree, uh, Oja Cree, Lakota, Dakota, Nakota peoples, Dene, Inuit peoples all the indigenous peoples of Manitoba is that this place was meant for our homes and for our lives. I think that's a pretty quick way to sum up glaciers too. After the glaciers have receded. That's a little less dry than some of the like <laughs> elementary school history. I remember about glaciers yes, as well. I think it's a good way of or like a, it. maybe more meaningful history. Of yeah, it. I think so. So when we talk about the people that were here, this is something that uh, Alan Sutherland pointed out when I talked to him. We're often kind of stuck with the We're frozen in treaty one. Okay. 
it's always been, you know, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, Dene, but mm-hmm. people have sh- moved and shifted over many, many years. So uh, Sutherland talked a bit about sort of the different people that we've had and sort of the clues that are there for them. Mm. So I'll play that. So uh, oral tradition says the, the first ones, and this is anthropologists, they just gave it a name, the Black Duck people based on pottery. So they carve and date that stuff, and it's just got to be at least 6,000 years old. But over time, they found out uh, with more modern equipment, the human, the human occupancy here that we call today, uh, where, the, where the Red River and Cinnaboyne meets, because they dig in the ground, is 9,000 years old, which is a long time. That's about when the glaciers retreated. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> so they were here right away. As soon as they had passage to the area, they were starting to live here. Uh, some not so much permanent because of uh, flooding and all that, but they leave behind their clues for who lived here. So they named the first one Black Duck people. So we have the Black Duck. Okay. There's also uh, the Larder and the Laurel cultures. Hmm. Those are sort of up near Lockport. They're named mostly for pottery that we find. Um, so we know that there have been people here both before and after the glaciers. I think the commonly taught theory is the old Bering Strait land bridge. Right. But oral histories from many, many groups say that they were here before and they were here after. And archaeological evidence does prove that. Hmm. But in the River Valley, at least a lot of it comes after the glaciers retreat because... Can't, can't live on a glacier. Well, also, you can't live in a huge lake. Right. right. <laughs> you have to wait until there's land. Maybe you can live on a glacier. It wouldn't be easy. Yeah. But as the glaciers retreat, we have the Dene start crossing the plains, a Cree come in, and people start moving from the east to the west. Right. So Sutherland talks a bit about sort of the migrations of different people coming in. Our origin story says there was original man and original woman. And and from that became 96 indigenous languages throughout North America. That's how I describe it today. But at one time, the language was so, so tight, so familiar. So the linguist groups call it Algonquian, which branches off to many, many others. And one of them is the Blackfoots. They were here. They were, they were living here. And our focus is the center of Turtle Island. They were here, the center of Turtle Island, living here. And then they migrated a little bit more, in which their present day is Alberta. Uh, the Dene was coming from another direction, and they ended up being more northern, right across Canada. The other one is Ininu, is the, is the Cree. Mm-hmm. Cree was migrating to these parts. So they're establishing themselves. But another group that came up the plains came to this part after the Blackfoots. Before the Cree, even, and they were the Dakota. The Dakota was here. This is their park. This is their home. Um, there was a breakaway group that eventually lived in these parts and were named after them, was called the Cinnaboyne, which are the Dakota. But they broke away for some reason. I still don't know. But like that happens, and even in families. So now you have this, they're called allies, they're allies in the, the Cree and uh, Cinnaboyne. Together, they allied to push the Dakota more south. They're pushing them more south. So that is the landscape of the valley going into like the 1600s. The Blackfoot okay. have moved west. They're kind of more in Alberta. You now have the Assiniboine and the Cree working together to remove the Dakota or Lakota or Nakota mm-hmm. people further south. So they get pushed down past the sort of border that exists today. Like the American border? Yeah, the American border. Okay. So 
basically they're pushed south and out of the territory, and it's something called like the Iron Alliance. Mm. It's a group of Cree and Assiniboine people that make sure to keep them out of their territory. Okay. And pushing the Dakota south is a lot of work. Hmm. They have a huge amount of territory. It spans out to like New York. Okay. Wow. But the Cree and Assiniboine do manage it, and then when they're not doing that, they farm. They have settlements. There's archaeological evidence of farming in places like Lockport and Melita. And um, they have these large diplomatic meetings at places like the Forks. Right. Where there is probably one of the biggest settlements in the area, Nestoea. Mm-hmm. So uh, here we have Nigan Sinclair talking about that. And so getting to the 18th century now, for hundreds of years, Indigenous peoples lived in this place. And uh, there was a permanent city. Uh, and I say that word intentionally, a city in the downtown core of Winnipeg, which was known uh, amongst Cree peoples as called Nestawea. And Nestawea uh, was, which means three points. You know, this that area now uh, is called the Forks or, you know, Broadway and Portage or Broad Portage and Maine. Uh, what I'm talking about is kind of a big oval that covers the portion of the Forks uh, Portage in Maine, and then Portage in Broadway, a big oval that kind of goes like this. And uh, of course, the railway that's right sort of smack dab just on the side of it as well. And uh, there was a huge city that was there uh, involving mostly Cree and Lakota, Dakota, Nakota peoples, or what was referred to as Assiniboine peoples. So yeah, a big city, a big center of like commerce and trade and life. There's one uh, oral history talking about like 500 years ago, so we're going to go back a bit here. That, like, the climate had been warming a little, so mm. bison were moving further out. Okay. And that was going to push different bands into different people's territory, and it could have caused conflict. Uh. So there was a group of seven to twelve indigenous bands that met at the Forks to try and have, like, diplomatic negotiations mm-hmm. about how you were going to continue to hunt bison through this. I think I've, I've heard about this, and there's, like, archaeological evidence yes, of this, Yes, there is, right? yeah. So one of those fun ways that... Uh, archaeology often is like oh the oral history stuff was right all along (laughs) right like we find pottery of multiple different nations around the forks yes exactly this is kind of what we have in the area before the fur trade starts but when the fur trade begins its growth begins to impact indigenous life across turtle island very slowly but surely europeans start bringing in uh, new materials so stuff at trading posts like guns and bullets and liquor and they become a source of trade along the waterways and while some European goods are helpful, some aren't. Mm-hmm. Guns didn't take off right away because if you're trying to, like, hunt a muskrat, you don't need the yeah. rifle, right? Uh, something like a snare, I guess, is yeah. a lot more useful. Yes, exactly. But so things like wool and... Totally, yeah. yeah. Blankets, things yeah. to help survive the winters. Certain metals. But probably the biggest thing they introduced to the prairies at first is disease. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was too glib, I'm sorry. <laughs> Jesus, Alex. I'm sorry. No, genuinely. Yeah. Genuinely. Too, too lip. Um, so this sweeps across indigenous communities that have no exposure to European diseases. Mortality rates are as high as 90% for some of these. People can die within days. So it's stuff like smallpox, whooping cough, measles. And uh, both Sutherland and Sinclair talk about that. So mm-hmm. here is uh, Sutherland first. And what happened in an event was uh, the early 1700s was uh, around 1730s that uh, the newcomer's disease, like smallpox and European disease, was finding its way into these parts, Mm -hmm. the trade routes into these parts. 
and it had a, 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 vis a, a terrible impact immediately where people die within days. And so they, you would imagine ghost, ghost villages. So all of those small settlements that were across the prairie start to vanish. And that then starts impacting bigger places like Nestoea. And here's Sinclair talking about that. In about 1780-81 or so, uh, you began to see the arrival of the Hudson Bay Company uh, en masse. While there had been explorers and traders and missionaries previous to that, uh, you really see en masse the migration of Hudson Bay traders into the Hudson Bay area. Uh, for a large part because the British were very xenophobic. They were very quite racist. And so uh, the Hudson Bay Company um, certainly had rules that controlled the way traders and Indigenous peoples would react and interact with them. And so the British couldn't get inroads into Ontario or Quebec and come across the land that way. They had to go into Hudson Bay and go north which is where the famous uh, story of the king in 1763 giving the land of this territory known as uh, later known as Rupert's land to Prince Rupert, which who then named it after himself. And so when you see that arrival of the Hudson Bay in 1781, 1782, 1783, they bring with them sicknesses and particularly smallpox. And upon the arrival of indigenous peoples interacting with members of the Hudson Bay Company, for two and a half years, uh, the disease of smallpox ravages Manitoba and eventually reaches Nestawea in 1780, 81, 82, 83. By the time 1784 rolls around, uh, the Nestawea, that 4,000-person permanent city, which at times in the summertime, you know, blossomed to almost 10,000 people, um, had been almost completely obliterated. You know, 90% of Nestawea had died because of that smallpox epidemic introduced by the Hudson Bay Company, which spread throughout and uh, reshaped the uh, the condition of Indigenous peoples in this area. I think the reference that Alan Sutherland made there to like ghost villages is is really impactful. I think so. Yeah, that's really horrifying to think about places where you know virtually everyone has been wiped out by disease, and there's just no trace of anyone left. Yeah. And this is something that Egon Sinclair has written about as well, that you can, in the city before we had like Winnipeg properly, a lot of what was now Broadway was burial grounds for people that had died Oh wow, of smallpox. So like a good chunk of what is now Winnipeg was built on essentially the bones of indigenous people that Europeans had killed. Ugh. It's in, I think I want to make a joke to lighten the mood, but I know that's not. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel the... I, I, <laughs> the I, impulse, right? I feel the impulse. But the impact of all this population decline is a cause of concern for the Cree and the Assiniboia, who are still trying to keep the Dakota out. Right. Now their forces are considerably weakened, mm. and there is a threat that the Dakota can now push back into the territory they're trying to keep them out of. And they start reaching out to potential allies. So uh, Alan Sutherland talks a bit about that. And that's when the, the Cree was worried that the Dakota is going to just come back and, and take everything away from them whatever the grounds, territories they gained, they didn't, they didn't feel that they could hold the Dakota back. Um, I just wanted to make a quick interjection here that um, when we talk about like indigenous names, the ones that we call them now, or we did like 20 years ago, were based on European names. Right. So the Anishinaabe are a large group and have different names depending on where they're from. So some are from Sault Ste. Marie, which mm. is where the name Salto comes from. Okay. Which is from like a French word for falls, I think. Mm. 
But uh, you also have the Ojibwe, which are also an Anishinaabe group, but they come, it comes from the American term Chippewa. Okay. So basically, it's just like, if you're from Sault Ste. Marie, if you're from further south across the American border, it's Salto or Chippewa or Ojibwe. They're all Anishinaabe. Okay. But it's just a big group with lots of smaller names underneath, essentially. Right. Okay. And I, I feel like, yeah, like you said, recently we've moved more towards calling people by the names that they call themselves. So, Anishinaabe. Yeah. So that is who the Cree reach out to. This is the rest of Sutherland's part talking about that. So getting back to the Cree approaching the Ojibwe, and uh, in, uh, our, back then they would call Lake Superior our capital. That's where all the Anishinaabe Confederacy was joined by all throughout the Great Lakes. And they approached the Ojibwe says, can you, we would like you to live with us. There are plenty to share where we are. We like to share from our common bowl, and there's plenty. We are tired of seeing the bones of our people because they're explaining there's very little of us left. And and reason why uh, we approached the Ojibwe is because they're originally, the Anishinaabe is really from the East Coast. As they migrated into these parts going west, along the Great Lakes, especially into the into the plains, they had to go through many nations. Mm-hmm. So they had their they had their wars fighting through different places, like the Iroquois Nation. Then later on, with the Lakota, Dakota, Dakota, you know. So they're they're holding their own. They've been at war for the war itself ended in 1860 here at the Lower Fort Gary. <clears throat> what they wanted was that warrior society. They're also known as uh, people of great medicine. So. A lot, of, a lot of other tribes feared the, the, the Ojibwe. So he says, come in with us. So they got the invitation. They sent it out. Everybody started moving into this area. Like I said, the Soto started finding their places along the lakes. They're known as people of the lakes. So a lot of their communities is along the lakes, including my own, you know, Waterhead River. We were later called Waterhead River Band. Then water and reserve now we're scouting first nation which is another story but anyway <laughs> then there are those that came up from the south and that's where you, the story of Pegasus comes in okay so i just heard the name of our uh, subject yeah there. he's finally coming in we've set the stage okay this is the environment Pegasus is coming into and it's why he's coming into it he is a leader of an ojibwe band that's been invited to come into the area i had no idea about this I didn't either. Right, that there was this sort of invitation made. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, the thing I'm noticing with Pegasus is that you see his name a lot in the city. Not a lot of talk about who he actually was as a person, which is fascinating. So we don't know a whole lot about his early life, which is not a huge surprise. Pegasus didn't speak much English. He didn't write, so he couldn't leave any written records himself. We have some notes from, uh, like traders that came by, some oral histories of mm-hmm. what might have happened. So we have educated guesses. Right. So what we know is that he was uh, probably born around Sault Ste. Marie. His parents are unknown. He was allegedly abandoned on a pile of wood chips and then adopted into a different hmm. family. It's not really known why he was abandoned. There were some theories that his father may have been a white fur trader. Okay. And that might have contributed to something, but it's not totally clear. Hmm. Regardless, at some point, a group of Anishinaabe moved to Red Lake, Minnesota, and Pegasus is likely among this group moving from Sault Ste. Marie to 
Minnesota. And then they start moving north along the Red River, passing the Forks, and then heading up towards uh, Netley Creek. Okay. And uh, Sutherland talked a bit about what sort of Netley Creek or Nestle Creek looked like when they moved in. So when he came to the uh, to these parts, he uh, they call it uh, Nestle Creek now, but it was Dead Man's Dead I don't know Dead Village Creek or something. Anyway, it's uh it was a Cree village designated by, and there's an oral history on how they got that in a raiding party by going south against the Dakota, and they took infected blankets with them, came back, and then they essentially their whole village got wiped out, except for a little boy, a little Cree boy, and that's the one Peg was found. He adopted that boy right away to be part of his people. But he started picking up the reminiscences of all the other Cree people, the, the Swampy Cree people, the Plains Cree people, who survived these epidemics. So he became a chief, a leader of not only the Ojibwe, but the Cree people. So Penguis makes a name for himself, kind of gathering forces together again and helping sort of pick up what was left of the epidemics from the years before this. Hmm. And he is young when this is happening. He is late teens, early 20s. Oh, wow. And he and his band establish a flourishing garden in a large meeting area at Netley Creek. Uh, this includes something called a like ground ca- a grand council area. Uh, Sutherland talks a bit about that and how sort of the land was. But he wasn't the only chief in his parts. There was many others that, that, uh, that were here. Like There was a strong claim with Russo band. They had Russo rapid bands. They had all kinds. Because everybody wasn't necessarily tied to one spot. You live you live in three or four families as kins and your band is essentially spread out. And when you get together, you have a grand council. In the summertime, when you meet as a people, as a gathering, it's called a grand council. And to this day, we, we celebrate these kind of gatherings called powwows. <laughs> but it's essentially, it's, this, it's a renewal of culture, renewal of, those that smoke is, a, is another term they use. They go they go and smoke. They're just basically rare pipes doing ceremonies and talking about important things. And that is what Netley Creek becomes. Okay. Pretty quickly after Pegwis takes over. Neat. So there's this like rebuilding process. Yeah, it seems like a pretty considerable one. Mm-hmm. There are some pictures or some evidence that there might have been like a pretty big grave site in Netley Creek as well from the uh, earlier smallpox epidemic. But mm-hmm. just because they're so close to the... A Red River in Lake Winnipeg, those get washed away in a flood. Oh, okay. So, not there anymore. Right. But it seems like, yeah, Pegwis had established a pretty, like, sizable and thriving settlement in the area. Mm-hmm. But they weren't always there full-time. They would have been dealing with, say, the fur trade. They would have been moving around to hunt. They would have come and set up a camp near the Forks as well, near sort of Kildonan Park area. So there's a lot of, like, bouncing around going mm-hmm. on. So, when Pegasus is arriving, it's the late 1700s. And if you wanted to get involved in the fur trade, you had a couple of companies you could trade with. The two big ones are obviously the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company. Mm-hmm. And there is a lesser known and very short-lived XY Company. Oh, okay. Have you heard of them? I don't think so. No, it's fair. They were not They were around for less than a decade. Okay. They're an offshoot of the Northwest Company. Huh. But they were the first ones that uh, Pegwis and his band trade with. Different people would work with different companies. The Métis were predominantly allied with the Northwest Company, but not exclusively. Uh, they weren't called the Métis quite yet. They were the Bois Brûlés. Mm-hmm. So they are the children of fur traders and their indigenous partners. And then, yeah, the Ojibwe settle with the XY Company. 
where they work with a man named Henry Krabasa, who is like their liaison and organizes trades and gives them supplies like canoes. But the XY company is coming out of this sort of internal divide with the Northwest Company. They break in uh, 1795, and within a decade, they've gone back together. Oh, okay. <laughs> so Pegwis has a relationship with Krabasa and trusts him, despite the rumors that the XY Company is starting to falter as we get into the 1800s. I bet on a losing horse here. Yeah. It seems like he did. So Pegwis and his band have a pretty consistent lifestyle on the plains, so they would go out on bison hunts in January to February. By March, they'd go into muskrat hunting. Um, and slowly, they would push sort of west, and then they would come back to the area in the summer for fishing and gardening. So in the summers, they talk with Krabasa. They grow stuff at Netley Creek. Um, they develop a thriving garden growing uh, stuff like the Three Sisters, which are squash, beans, and corn. Yeah. Yeah. And... In Ellie Creek, they also build a, a garden called the Big Tent Site, which is where the Grand Councils take place. And they would travel by the rivers to get where they needed to go. So if you're heading out west, you take the river out that way. If you're heading south, you take the Red River from Nellie Creek to the Forks. Makes sense. Or further south to uh, like Fort Pamina, which is just across the border today. So some of the early accounts of Pegwas come trading at Fort Pamina, because that's where the XY company was set up. Okay. And there is... Um, a story that around 1803, Pegwis and his band are in Fort Pamina. They're trying to ward off a uh, Dakota incursion mm-hmm. when they encounter um, a man attacking an older woman. Oh. Pegwis intervenes, tries to apprehend him. The man fights back and in the process bites off part of Pegwis's nose. What? Yep. <laughs> okay. Um, after this, some sources call him the cut nose chief. Huh. This is a pretty badass origin story, right? <laughs> the thing is, also, uh, the only source I can find for this story is a footnote in a different book. Everyone else is kind of like, he lost his nose in a fight sometime. Huh. Big shrug. Okay. Regardless, he's not hes not one to mess around. Right. A guy bit his nose off. Sure, and he kept on trucking. Yeah. So, by 1805, there's more talk of the XY company being bought out or bought back by the Northwest Company. But Kravasa tells Pegwis and the Ojibwe that there is nothing to worry about. The company is doing just fine. I'll have double the canoes this year. Oh, no. And um, Kravasa was caught not long after moving all of his stuff from the <gasps> XY fort into the Northwest Company's fort. <laughs> That's so bad. Yeah. Um, a fur trader, Alexander Henry, wrote that he had to physically stop Pegwis from attacking Kravasa after that. Oh, my God. That's so funny. You just get, like, caught with a U-Haul outside the fort. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Like, literally, God. Like, moving your sofa. They're like, where are you taking He's your sofa? His, like, mattress. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just throwing this one out. I'm just giving it to the other guys. Yeah. They need it more than us. Because we're doing so well. Yeah. Oh, man. So, um, after this, they switched to trading with the Northwest Company. Pegwis would then go to uh, the Forks. And he'd sort of come and go. And normally, every time he went, there would be a new thing happening. So, like, when he comes in 1807, they're building construction of a new trading post, Fort Gibraltar. Okay. That's started, so that's a Northwest Company fort. There's Ojibwe, Cree, Assiniboine, and Ottawa people living in the area, some year-round, some coming and going. There's also a smaller contingent of freemen or traders who had finished their terms with their respective fur trading companies and were staying in the area with their wives and kids. And then there were Métis families who were starting to farm in the area as well. They're the ones that supply most of Fort Gibraltar with food. Cool. What's under construction. And without the XY company in the area at all, there is this sort of increasing rivalry between the HBC and the Northwest Company. 
So Pegwa starts to work mostly with the Northwest Company. Until sometime in 1812, when Pegwis has a huge falling out with a Northwest, company, a Northwest Company employee, John Wells. Okay. We do not know what it is. Yeah. All we know is that at some point in 1812, he switches over to the Hudson's Bay Company and never trades with the Northwest Company wow. again. Oh, okay. So it's not totally clear what happened. So he's been wronged by two fur trading companies now. <laughs> yes. Though both kind of the Northwest Company. I think essentially both the Northwest yeah. Company. I don't think the XY Company can be called anything yeah. other than like an offshoot of that. Yeah. So the summer of 1812 is a pretty big year for the Forks. Mm -hmm. uh, for one, Cuthbert Grant comes home. Okay. Uh, do you know who Cuthbert Grant is? Of course you do. Well, kind of. <laughs> tell me what you know. No, tell me. <laughs> otherwise I'll embarrass myself. Okay. So Grant is the son of um, a Northwest Company employee, Cuthbert Grant Sr. Okay. All right. <laughs> and his Métis wife. And they had sent uh, Cuthbert Grant Jr. to Montreal for schooling. He is schooled by William McGilvery of street fame. Mm -hmm. uh, of street fame? Sorry, <laughs> thank I just you. need to rest on that for a second. <laughs> uh, so McGilvery is also a Northwest Company agent, and he was Grant's guardian when they were in Montreal. At 17 years old, Cuthbert Grant comes home. He's now working for the Northwest Company. And he will shortly after become something of a Métis leader in the mm -hmm. area. And it's also when we see, or the summer of 1812 is also when we see some new arrivals coming to the Forks near the end of August. They are a group of hungry and tired Scotsmen coming in York boats. Oh, okay. This is the first contingent of the Selkirk settlers. Though no one here knew that at the time, what they saw were a group of men who had a long trip. They had an ox with them, and they brought with them Miles McDonnell, or McDonnell. Uh, yeah, I went to Miles McDonnell Collegiate. McDonnell, okay. McDonnell is we'll how we said it. I, I don't know if that's, that might just be how teenagers say it. I don't know. We'll roll with it. <laughs> So, McDonnell was the appointed governor of the area, who had been sent in by Selkirk. So, on a higher administrative level, beyond what anyone at the Forks knows, um, both, like, admin people with the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company knew about these settlers arriving. So, Lord Selkirk had basically arranged this movement of Scotsmen from Scotland to various parts of North America after the English kicked them out for land, essentially. Okay. It's basically the the British want farmland, and they will take it from the Scots, who now have nowhere to go. Okay. And Selkirk tries to find different places for them to go, and he gets the land in North America by buying increasing numbers of shares in the Hudson's Bay Company. Okay. So he becomes a major shareholder, and then is like, I would like to do this. Sure. Okay. That's how he gets there. All right. It doesn't really matter for anyone here. I don't think anyone in Red River at the time knows or cares. Right. But... What that means is that the Northwest Company, you know, that there is basically more men from the Hudson's Bay Company arriving. Okay. So they're not, not thrilled about this. They are staunchly opposed. And even before the Scots had left sort of the UK, they were trying to push propaganda on them about how terrible oh. it was. Oh, really? So basically, <laughs> this first group of Scots are stuck in a port waiting to ship out. And the Northwest Company is, like, handing out newsletters about, like, the harsh conditions and, like, the threat of indigenous people and how, like dangerous it's gonna be and you shouldn't dare come here it's like do you remember when i did my william beale episode yes and they tried to like get like black people not to immigrate by yeah. basically sending things out in black newspapers being like she manitoba sure is gross bad. and bad yes that's what the northwest company is doing. okay so that's what the men who come here are arriving with right a steady dose of like low morale propaganda <laughs> oh no in a long trip but what they find when they arrive is that people here help them Oh, okay. Because what they see is people not dressed for the weather, not prepared. They don't really have enough food. 
They don't really know how to hunt in this environment. Sure. So they see people that are going to die. Yeah. So they're also completely dependent on the Hudson's Bay Company for support. And that's not really going to happen. Oh, okay. Like, they'll try, but you can't send anything quickly here if you need something. And you have to, like, write to, say, Ottawa. Yeah. Or wherever they're going. It's going to take forever. Because you have to go up through Hudson's Bay and around. Yeah. Yeah. So they are basically reliant on the people here. Mm Mm-hmm. So the Freemen, the Métis, and Ojibwe all help hunt, loan tools, horses, canoes. They provide seed and grain. So, like, at first, they are being kind of set up to survive. Everyone sees this as, like, maybe a new potential, like, ally or a friend. Right. But then, MacDonnell goofs it up. Ah. Uh, I'm going to read a line from the Encyclopedia on Canadian Biography that mm-hmm. goes, MacDonnell faced a series of challenges that would have taxed the ingenuity of a much more talented man. Okay. Which is to say, he wasn't a talented man. He was not up to what was about to happen. <laughs> okay. And he caused a number of the problems that would happen, I would argue. Because not long after these first group of settlers arrive, McDonnell holds a ceremony on the banks of the Red River with a bunch of pomp and circumstance and gives a really long speech that boils down to the Hudson's Bay Company says, I'm in charge. Oh, boy. <laughs> How many times does the Hudson's Bay Company try to do this? Oh, constantly. <laughs> they have, like, a nice little, like, ceremonial gun firing and yeah. then... He invites everyone back to his tent for drinks. Uh, Donna Sutherland thinks that Pegwis may have been invited to take part in some of the festivities as, like, the respected leader in the area, mm-hmm. but we don't really know for sure. It's a very funny way to try to assert authority. <laughs> to go to the banks of the Red River also. Yeah. And just be like, I'm in charge now, and then fire off some guns. <laughs> and then go have a drink in your tent. Great. So And everyone's like, yep. Sounds yeah. good. No, Except no. <laughs> no argument here. Um, the speech raised a lot of eyebrows. Sure. Like, on the whole, I wouldn't say the Cree Assiniboine or, like, Anishinaabe on the whole were opposed to new people coming in, especially when it's like, they could help us with the threat of the Lakota. Right. This is great. But it's a bit different to have a guy turn up and be like, I own all of this. Yeah, I- Vanish with no questions. I would imagine mostly confusion. Yes. So, uh, Sutherland talks a bit about at least why the Métis were so resistant to the arrival of the settlers. Mm-hmm. This is a land of opportunity. You know, uh, in Europe, the, a lot of times, uh, if you're not a landowner, you're working for a land. So there wasn't too many land to have. So now you had an opportunity to say, hey, we'll, we'll choose our plots, we'll become farmers. And at that time, the the only farmers that were around was those that retired from the Hudson Bay Company. So they, they want to retire there. They're not going back to Europe. No. So they're staying. They're they're living near the the fort, like lower at the lower Fort Gary. So they're they're becoming settlers in St. Andrews. So there was there was a little bit of that, but it was dominantly was the Métis who was making a living supplying pemmican to the forts. Now transporting uh, them over over land base with those ox carts. York boats was invented by the Métis too. So there was a lot of inventions towards that industry. So they didn't want farmers. They didn't want cattle to go bring European disease to the buffalo. They that's their that's their life. Life surrounds by that the buffalo. And and the, the events are, and that's another history, the events that was going on in the United States with the United States going through the Indian Wars and they they started uh, taking on the food source by killing off all the buffaloes. So less and less are showing up. So there was times when you didn't have to go too far to find the buffalo. 
Now you got to go past source. Now you got to go further out. So that's why those art, uh, ox carts was invented. Just we got to bring these supplies back, make them independent. So they had a really uh, good thing going. They don't want nobody to come around and mess that up. So you can see why it's such a sweet deal for the settlers at first to be like, aha, like land that we can like not get kicked out of. Right. But and then I for the Métis, they see a very visible threat. And there's probably like misunderstandings too in terms of um, like land use. Like I imagine that a lot of people coming from this like European farming society are coming in there. What they're seeing is unused land. Yes. And we'll talk about that okay. in a second. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> So the Métis see a threat pretty early on. McDonald's speech doesn't encourage them at all. And in case anyone's trying to like charitably interpret what he was doing, uh, McDonnell quickly uh, bans removing tree bark for anyone but the what? settlers. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm assuming for like building and fires. Yeah, like you need birch bark. Yeah. But okay. Only the settlers can all have right. birch bark now. Uh, banned fishing in the bed spots of the river for anyone but the settlers. And then tries to make it so that anyone who wants to fish in those areas needs a license that only he can give out. Incredible. And he's also trying to find a way to legally acquire the land and is really coming up blank. There's a letter that he wrote to Lord Selkirk where he says, I'm at a loss in what manner to make a purchase from the natives. Those here do not call themselves owner of the soil. So, like, this is a pretty hard block to come up against. That yes. They don't consider themselves the owners of the soil. Right. They can't sell it to you. Sure. Yeah. So... He is, like, actively trying to find a way to get this land from them. Uh, the Métis take to calling him Captain Cartouche. Okay. Which is a nickname inspired by a French bandit who was known for his bravery and cunning. They meant it in a way where it was, like, uh, an ironic like, nickname. Like an ironic nickname. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> like when you call a mean dog Fluffy. Yes, exactly. So that's Captain Cartouche. Okay. Despite all of this, Pegwa stays out of this conflict. Okay. So the Ojibwe don't really get involved. Uh, in the in the fall of 1812, Pegwis offers aid to the settlers and says he'll stay through the winter to help them hunt. And he does. Mm -hmm. Some remain with Pegwis, and then others are taken south to Fort Dare, which is a Hudson's Bay Company fort just south of Fort Pemina. It's like across the river in North Dakota. The fort wasn't very nice. It was mostly like a series of tents. It's a 115-kilometer journey. And uh, the Ojibwe take the children of the settlement on their horses and like, rush ahead. Okay. There's this story where like the parents were on foot. And just other kids vanish over the horizon. <laughs> and we're like, oh, okay. And then arrive at the fort and all of the kids are there totally fine. Yeah. So Pegwis's band teaches the settlers to hunt. And they come back to Red River the following spring. Okay. So um, Sutherland talks a bit about what that first winter was like here. So the winter was coming on. And meanwhile, the newcomers were, were, were making their own. <clears throat> trying to grow their food and still get ready for a, a harsh winter. They were told that... And it still is our our uh, our northern hemisphere can be quite harsh if you're not prepared for it. So you you learn to to try to prepare for it. So you store your food. You're getting ready. And I and I think at this time Pegasus was having that relationship because he has a good relationship with the Hudson Bay Company, mm -hmm. especially at Lower Lower Fort Gary in that area. But he was already living here uh, as we call Codolan Park. So he's in the midst of all these settlers. The <laughs> <laughs> Ojibwe, you know, his Cree and Ojibwe people and so forth. So he's probably helping them in terms of getting ready for the winter. Well, now the hostilities really began in the fall. So we're setting something up there. Yeah. 
So, what happens the next year, uh, more settlers arrive by ship in the summer. Okay. And this starts to cause more problems. The initial group was pretty small. I can't find a consistent number. It was anywhere between, like, 20 to 40. Okay. It wasn't a lot of them. It was all men. And that's enough people you can kind of realistically help to support them yeah. for some length of time. So more people arrive. And this is a surprise to many of the Métis who are returning back to Renner from their summer trips. Oh. So you were talking a bit about uh, used land earlier. And that's the same point Sutherland makes. And the way the Métis lifestyle was that you didn't have to be on your farmland, your plots, year-round, especially in the summertime, where, like, they, we, they, they mirror the lifestyle, of course, their brothers and sisters, their cousins, is the First Nations themselves, that you, this time of year, you, you, you go with the seasons, you got things to do this time of the season, <laughs> you're now looking at maple syrup, so you're going to go and harvest that, you're mending your canoe, you're getting ready for the spring, and the and then you're going to get the, uh, the spring uh, with the fish, the sturgeon and all that. You're going to get... So there's always that, medicines and so forth. You plant your garden, but you don't have to tend it. You, you, the way we plant gardens is the three sisters. You know, you can leave it because it looks after itself. Now you can move on and to the buffalo herd. And you can go and, and then have fun activities too, like everybody else. Mm -hmm. Then you come back, then you're going to find... Somebody moved into your plot. Maybe somebody <laughs> took your garden. Now they're upset. Now who are you to do take this my my land away? Right. I guess it's like if you like showed up at your summer cabin and someone had moved into it. Yes, and it's like, oh, I own this. Yeah. Because from the settlers' perspective, Selkirk had told them that they had this land. They right. believe they have a like legal title to it. Ah, uh, that's yeah. But no one else sees it that way. So the Métis have pegged the settlers of the threat. They've been pretty, like, neutral on it so far. Mm -hmm. But the Northwest Company also sees the settlers as the threat and starts egging them oh, on a little bit. because they're coming with the HBC company. Yes, they're business rivals. So what the Northwest Company does, it starts encouraging traders to overcharge settlers. So they pay more for basic goods. Okay. Some Métis traders do that. Pegwis and the Ojibwe don't. But that's, like, the lowest stake option people choose because... Um, provisions and buildings are also burned. Oh, jeez. So, like, anything that they built was burned to the ground. And once again, the settlers have to leave and head south and spend their winter at Fort Dare. Right. Uh, and then they come back the next spring, but in the middle of this winter, the winter of, like, 1813 to 1814, McDonnell offers a new proclamation. Oh, okay. I'm sure this will help. <laughs> for a year, no one could remove provisions from Selkirk's territory except for food necessary to complete journeys. To get an exemption, you have to apply to McDonald for a license. <laughs> okay. This is basically banning the trading of pemmican. Oh, okay. I was like, what resources does he mean? Okay. Pemmican. Hmm. Do you want to explain what pemmican is? Yeah. Uh, pemmican is basically a super high fat, high calorie food source. It's um, fat. I mean, mostly fat and yeah. dried meat kind of pounded together and sometimes with like berries and stuff yeah. for flavor. And, like, once dried, it's functionally waterproof. Yeah, so it's something that you can... It's a good voyageur snack. Yes, you can take it with you on, on long trips, and you don't have to eat a ton of it to get a lot of yeah. calories. So, basically, McDonnell is saying that you cannot take pemmican outside of this territory, even though it is the, like, main food source for any fur trader or a lot of people on the prairies. Mm -hmm. Unless you're doing it for, like, a quick trip. You can't trade. Huh. Uh, in response, uh, the Métis start driving the buffalo further west. Okay, interesting. 
this isn't a problem for them. They uh, hunt on horseback. Right. So they can just follow them out. Sure. They have the ox carts. But for the settlers and some of the Ojibwe who don't hunt on horseback, that means they can't access that food source anymore. Right. So, like, basically the logic, I think, was McDonald's going to cut off ours will cut off yours. Mm. And then, in return, McDonald pro- uh, prohibits the running of buffalo in the summer of 1814. This is weird. It's weird just to set a bunch of, like, kind of arbitrary, punitive rules in an attempt to take control of things. Yeah. I don't know. Like, what did he think was going to happen is my question. I don't know. I have no idea. Like, they would be like, ah, you got us. Fine, we'll listen to you, random man that turned up. Have have all the land. He's been here for two years. Oh, jeez. Um, the punishment for uh, running Buffalo is imprisonment. Wow. Um, there's a good amount of protest to the decision. A Cuthbert Grant notably protested it pretty heavily. Uh, we don't have any record on uh, Pegwis's thoughts on the matter. Mm-hmm. By this point, he's probably busy with, like, family and life and stuff elsewhere. Um, by 1814, Pegwis has two wives, four sons, and six daughters. Okay. That'll it's a big family. Busy. And also, he's got, like, a whole group of people he's in charge of and has to lead. And yeah. he doesn't technically live in Red River year-round, so mm-hmm. he might just be, like gone hunting sure and then comes back and finds out all of this has happened it's like oh no who said he's in charge of what What? (laughs) so what we do know is that probably by the summer of 1814 he's likely at his camp in Kildonan because it tends to be where they were and that means he's there when more settlers arrive in September of 1814 Mm. basically the Selkirk settlers arrive in like small contingents right and this 1814 group arrives in the midst of just like chaos hmm like, no one's getting along anymore. The Métis are still burning things when they get the chance. Yeah. Everyone's being overcharged. Um, what also was happening in the fall of 1814 is um, John Spencer, who is a sheriff for the Hudson's Bay Company, is arrested by the Northwest Company. Uh, they hold him in Fort Gibraltar. The settlers try and break him out with, like, makeshift weapons. Okay. But then Spencer talks them down. It's just like, you can't do this. Don't. Right. So they get down, and then finally Spencer's released. But he's released because McDonnell makes a compromise where he says he'll return a pemmican stock to the Norwesters that he seized. Because he has been okay. seizing pemmican oh, from people. Weird. Okay. Yeah. So he promises to stop and give that back. If Let's kind of like chill out on the hostilities for a little bit. Sure. So for a moment, things kind of chill out by September of 1814, which means that McDonnell needs to get allies. Okay. And he turns to Pegasus. Huh. So, in the fall of 1814, Pegwis receives an invitation from him. Pegwis has been invited to head up north to York Factory, mm-hmm. to an HBC fort to go check out their boats and their sort of operations, and Pegwis agrees and heads up with them, and he spends two nights there on the HMS Rosamond, which is an exploratory ship that they have parked in the bay, basically. And they wine and dine Pegwis while they show off all of their big ships. Mm-hmm. Um, the captain of the Rosamond, uh, Edward Chappell, wrote a bit about the visit, so we actually kind of know what happened. Right. Oh, interesting. So what we know is that Pegwis is given um, a coarse blue cr- uh, cloth and ornamented with like lace and shoulder knots. He's got a round hat with an ostrich feather in the front. Oh, that's fun. A white shirt with frills and ruffles, a pair of red stockings, yellow garters, and black shoes. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty fun time. Yeah. They also perform for him. Okay. They, like, sing songs, and then Pegwis trades back with some songs as well. So this feels like a pretty, like, respectful and and really nice, actually. Yes. Like, invitation. Th- yeah. Uh, though, in the notes, Chappelle says, like, Pegwis wasn't super impressed by oh, anything really? but their drums. Oh, okay. But because, like, they use drums. Yeah. I mean, those clothes, like, sound pretty weird from, like, a North American <laughs> perspective <laughs> in the 1700s. Like, what is he going to do with a hat with an ostrich feather? <laughs> 
I don't know what I'd do if someone gave me a hat with an ostrich feather. So he's given a tour of the ship, and then he actually spends the night on the boat. Okay. And there is a note in the, like, story about this where they give him a guy to help him undress, because that's what, I guess, higher-ranking HBC officers would have had as, like, an attendant to help (laughs) him get out of their clothes. Pegwis doesn't need that. No. So they're like, oh, the attendant apparently just watches the man, like, quickly takes his clothes off and gets into bed. As you do. So, so they gave him a man to watch, watch him the other go note, to bed. And this is a baffling part, and I think it says a lot about the weird biases that everyone was coming into this with. Pegos gets into the bed and lies down with his feet on the pillow. Mm-hmm. And it causes a problem on the ship because everyone's like, you need to teach this man to lie down like a Christian. What? <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. There's like... Did God ordain we must all sleep with well, our head on a pillow? No, I don't think so. I don't remember that being in the Bible. <laughs> the other thing also is that the writing uh, Edward Chappelle has about all of this just reeks of, like, anti-Indigenous bias. Right. I have trimmed out a lot of it. Okay. Because you have to, like, read through it and be like, okay, here's what's actually happening and here's how he's framing it. Yeah. So Chappelle writes a lot about how Peg- uh, Pegwis comes in and brags and has a big ego and is talking about all of his, like, exploits. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly what the HBC is doing at the same time. Right. They are doing the same thing. They're showing in their big boat. Yeah. And their fancy clothes. They're showing off to each other. Yeah. That's very normal. Sure. But he's like, this is always what men do when they meet each other. This is a character flaw. But no, what happened is that Pegwis saw a group of men being like, here's our big boat. And he was like, here's a cool thing I did. Right. That's the gist of it. We don't know what exploits he talks about. No, I think that's a lot of, of what, like, reading sources from, you know, the kind of 1700s and 1800s in this area is like is yep. a, like in my Goulet episode which we'll get to I've been doing a lot of that yeah you have to really like read through it and then be like okay what are what's actually happening right because sometimes the only source we have is one that we know is awfully biased and, yep. and hateful sometimes yes so regardless Pegwis is wined and dined mm-hmm. and he uh returns home to Netley Creek in October with all of his gifts and then he and his men pack up and promptly go out hunting west okay uh, they don't come back until the spring of 1815, and around this time, we know Netley Creek has a population of about 65, which is a pretty good thing for yeah. a small little moving settlement. And then when Pegwis returns in the spring of 1815, coming back to Red River to see what's going on, oh boy, things have gotten worse. Oh no. Uh, the Norwest Company has been trying to chip away at the settler's trust in Lord Selkirk. Oh, but being okay. But like, he lied to you. Well, con- he did. Like, he did, though. He did. <laughs> so they're trying to sort of chip away at that a little bit and like i have to say that i have some empathy for those settlers that you know they've come all the way here and I'm they sure put their trust in someone they come to somewhere new and what they arrive at is a situation where seemingly no one wants them no there. one wants them there and where else, where are they gonna go they can't go back home no and also if you look at a map of where the Selkirk settlers were sent to because there were different groups that were sent to uh places on the east coast and then also australia they're all shipped to places that are very hard to get back to england oh, from. oh yeah and I, I mean, I'm sure, you know, a lot of them had whatever sold what they owned back home. Yep. If they had anything, and spent all their money on this. So they are stuck. Yeah. Um, so Cuthbert Grant and the Métis have been establishing a camp across the river from the settlement. And they are starting to steal horses and plows. Okay. Um, so we're going to stop and talk about Grant real quickly here. Because okay. by this point, Grant is sort of the unofficial war chief of the Métis. Okay. Uh, the Northwest Company had named him Captain General, mm-hmm. but the men weren't, like, obligated to follow him. He could only lead as long as his men trusted him. Sure. And the moment he made a mistake, they might be like, no, get out of here. But everyone liked him and they accepted him, so he 
had a pretty good sway over the Métis people in the area. He was a strong orator, he was good at meeting disputes, and he was a good hunter. Hmm. And once this war of sorts was over, Grant would go back to just being a normal guy in this sort of group. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, they did see this as a war. This was a threat. Yeah. Because essentially what happens to them is that a bunch of people sort of invade and take all of their stuff. Yeah. And proclaim that they're in charge and yeah. So the Northwest Company starts wearing uh, their War of 1812 uniforms to encourage the idea. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the Métis, some of them begin wearing war paint and feathers and carrying weapons around. Hmm. So it's not like an outright continued battle. It's just like a slow and steady war where they're chipping away at things. Sure. They learn to fight from their families who were the Ojibwa and Cree. So they do a lot of smaller skirmishes. They steal food. They steal equipment. And they really wear the settlers down. Mm-hmm. A good chunk of them, uh, between 40 to 60, pack up and go to Upper Canada. And Reasonable. Like, yeah. I would too, also. Yep. So Pegwis would be aware of all of this happening. There's a note uh, from Peter Fiddler, who's a cartographer and an employee with the HBC, who says that Pegwis and other like indigenous bands were close in the area and just kind of waiting and watching to see what would happen. And which means that they're watching when uh, the Northwest Company leader, Duncan Cameron, demands the arrest of McDonnell. And they're around the same time when the Northwest Company begins opening fire on the settlers. Oh, wow. Um, a man named Mr. Warren is wounded and dies from his injuries. And then finally, McDonnell agrees to surrender to end things. Hmm. So he leaves in the spring of 1815. He's whisked away to Montreal, where the Northwest Company tries to hold him for trial. Oh, wow. I don't know on what. The trial okay. never happens. All right. And then for a brief period, Peter Fiddler, who is just a cartographer and an employee, becomes like the leader of the area for this oh. brief period. Weird. Okay. He's just the guy who's there, I guess. He's just the guy who's there. He was, I guess high enough ranking that he sort of became in charge. And unfortunately, McDonnell leaving didn't calm things down. Mm. Uh, Fiddler wrote about mischief done daily by the Métis. So it's a lot of it's a lot of burning stuff down. Yeah. And like running things away. And then Cuthbert Grant orders the settlers to leave. Just tells them to get out. And the settlers actually start to pack. Okay. There's only 13 families left. It's about 60 people. And they're prepping to leave. And as they're getting ready to leave, uh, the Northwest Company burns down um, the houses in outhouses. Oh, wow. So, like, you cannot come back oh, right. once you go. Just, yeah, scorched earth here. Yes. And then this is the scene Pegwis arrives into, finally, with a fellow chief, Yellowleg, from okay, Lastibani. So he's, he's missed a lot. Uh, he's sort of maybe seen some of this happen, but it seems like he was like, maybe I'll step in now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pegwis and Yellowlegs have 33 armed warriors with them, and they talk to uh, Fiddler. And I have a clip from uh, Sinclair here talking about what he arrived into. And of course, they, you know, the Hudson Bay Company and the Northwest Company took turns burning down each other's settlements. And there's a very famous speech by Pegwis um, in which he's asked to intervene between the Northwest Company and the Hudson Bay Company. His literally first words, which were translated into English, his first words of a great speech that was translated after he'd been asked to intervene and pick a side. He, his first words are, what is wrong with you people? And there's probably nothing that's more accurate than, you know, why did you bring your battle between French and the French and the British here? Why do you fight so much? Why do you not respect the land and others in it? Uh, basically, what's wrong with you people? Is I think that's one of the most powerful things about Manitoba. It's a great way to begin things. It is. So this is uh, the rest of that speech or part of it. You do not trade skins from us. Why then are they always quarreling with you? They always had greedy hearts and jealous minds and always rip away those who brought us our necessaries. 
When your messenger came to our tents, he told my brother, Chief Yellowlegs, and our young men assembled in order to come to your assistance as we had been told that the Canadians had carted off our brother. Canadians means Métis, brother meaning McDonnell. Okay. We will offer these people uh, the pipe of peace, and if they will not smoke with you, we will not restrain our young men, but join them in the cry of war. So what Pegwis is saying is that, like, if we can't reach a compromise here, we will fight for the settlers. Okay. Interesting. Uh, so he goes on to talk about- So, like, he's not happy that they're being driven out. He is not. Okay. Because no. they've had a fairly, like, equitable relationship so far. He's helped right. them. They've given him supplies. Sure. Uh, and also, as a point, he still doesn't like the Northwest Company. Remember. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he's had this spat with them. He's had some kind of dispute with them, which I'm sure is coloring some of this. Sure. So, um- in his speech, he talks about the aid the settlers had provided to the Ojibwe. And then he splits his war party in half, some say with the settlers, and the rest go across the river with Pegwis to go talk to the Northwest Company. Mm. We do not know what happens, but he comes back, and his words are, My children, my heart is grieved. I return with shame. Those people have no ears to listen to the words of peace. Wow. So, with more men, they have heavier weapons. Pegwis's men didn't really stand a chance. Mm-hmm. And he knows that. So, instead, he suggests the settlers go to Jack River or Norway House... And he offers to escort them there as far as the mouth of, like, Winnipeg. He says that he's worried that if he doesn't, they'll try and sink their ships. Right. He does make a second attempt to tell the Northwest Company to chill out, but fails, and then tells a settler, I know them very well, and they have a sugared mouth and a deceitful tongue. So as they have got your friends out of this river, they will drop them like stones as they go along. No oh, jeez. So he has no faith in the Northwest Company. Yeah, and things he maybe feels that things have gone a little too far to mediate here. Yes. Just, so yeah. he escorts the settlers up to the mouth of Lake Winnipeg. They have a stopover at Netley Creek. And as thanks for their sort of help, Pegwis and his band are gifted five gallons of gunpowder, half a keg of lead, uh, 30 balls, 100 flints, 56 pounds of shot, 47 pounds of tobacco, and 20 gallons of rum. Okay. And that's going to be split between Pegwis and Yellow Legs. So Pegwis and Yellowlegs both give speeches about how sad they are the settlers are leaving, and they send the settlers off. Hmm. And that is the last they see of them for a while. Okay. But not forever. A month after this happens, and this is like July of the of 1815, a month later, a Hudson's Bay Company man arrives at Pegwis's camp near the Forks and introduces himself as Colin Robertson. Okay. And Pegwis is apparently pretty quick to be like, here's everything the Northwest Company did wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and then gives him a tour of, like, ev- like the wreckage yeah. of the former settlement. So Robertson had actually worked for the Northwest Company in the past, had just transferred over to the HBC, and had come to the Red River because Selkirk had asked him to. Okay. He brought with him a couple other Northwest Company employees. That's interesting that, that they, they haven't give up on the idea of settling here. No. They're just like, let's send in this other guy and see what he can do. I might have given up at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> So we don't really know how much Robertson told Pegwis about his plans at that first meeting, but they meet again a little bit later on in Netley Creek, and this time Robertson comes with 40 of the settlers and 17 men from the Hudson's Bay Company. Pegwis greets them pretty warmly, and once he learns they're going to try and rebuild the settlement, he says he'll bring them supplies in the next week. And then he comes back a week later with meat for the settlers and finds they've actually started taking over some of the burnt buildings and rebuilding what Hmm. they can. And they've also begun adding a fur trading post called Fort Douglas. Okay. Uh, Colin Robertson proves to be a bit more well-liked as a leader because he uh, listens to people sometimes. Oh, interesting. (laughs) So he, like, hears out some of the Métis concerns and demands. He's not, like, entirely altruistic. Part of what he's probably doing is trying to win them over. Like, the Métis are siding with the Northwest Company because they are providing for them. Mm -hmm. If he can prove he will be just as good Mm -hmm. and just as helpful, they might stop working with them as closely. Yeah. 
Um, and it's met with some success. The colony struggles and its number drops from 40 to 18 as people sort of pack up and leave. And just, I think, head back to Upper Canada. Which is fine. Because, mm-hmm. ugh, this would suck. It, uh, it would be hard to live here without having, you know, um, a family, a community to that's sort of pre-established yep. to support you. Yep, exactly. So, in the fall of 1815, word arrives that Lord Selkirk, his wife, and their children are going to make a voyage across the ocean to come visit the settlement. Hmm. Robertson recruits an HBC man to go and meet Selkirk in Montreal and deliver a letter letting him know the settlement has been partially rebuilt. Because he wouldn't know that yet. Right. I was going to say, like, what settlement? <laughs> it's unclear what Selkirk knows. At least I didn't look into what Selkirk knew about the situation going into this. Yeah. All we know is that people in Red River hear that he is coming, and then they have to send a man to Montreal to be like, it's okay. Right. <laughs> I'm still here a little bit. <laughs> so the person Robertson like recruits- Like, we've got good news and bad good news. news. <laughs> Things are bad. But maybe they're okay right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the person Robertson recruits is uh, Jean-Baptiste Lajamodier. Okay. Uh, do you know who that is at the top of your head? No, I know there's a street named after him. Oh, interesting. I was wondering if you would. Uh, his wife is Marie Anne Gadbury. Okay. She's the fight, uh, first white woman in the West. Oh. And her husband is sort of a pretty loyal HBC employee. Um, the Lajamodier family is pretty close with Pegwis's camp and with Robertson. So, uh, Jean-Baptiste and Mary are the grandparents of Louis Riel. Their oh, daughter marries okay. Louis yeah. Riel's dad. Right. Okay. Cool. So Louis Riel's grandparents are friends with Pegwis. Hmm. And in fact, when Jean-Baptiste is sent out to Montreal, his wife stays with Pegwis and his band. Hmm. So they actually like take her and the kids in. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So for a good chunk of time, Marie and Lajamodier is just like living with Pegwis. And Robertson is continuing to try to smooth things over with the settlement. And it's like, it's unlikely it would have actually succeeded in the long run. Mm-hmm. Things were probably too far gone. But any chance there was, this squash and the Hudson's Bay Company sends in a new governor. <laughs> they do this a lot. They do. Uh, this one, this time it's Robert Semple. Okay. Who was quickly nicknamed Mr. Simple. <laughs> I mean, it was right there. Yeah. It's a good one. So Semple sets up shop in Fort Douglas and doesn't really fix much. His people skills were reportedly terrible. I feel like that's the only thing the governor needs, right? <laughs> it's the worst people skills in the world. No, <laughs> no. I mean, I feel like at this point, what they really needed was to send in someone who knew how to speak to a human. But no, it's not what they get. Yeah. I, f- I don't know what their screening process would have been. I know it's nepotism. The son of a lord and that's it. Son of a lord are like, ah, we liked you when you were talking to only us, your fellow rich white guys. Yeah. <laughs> We've never seen you interact with someone else. Yeah. You might be okay. And they send in someone with a big ego and a bit of a temperament and no people skills. So he and Robertson do not get along at all. Okay. They clash constantly, especially because Robertson keeps taking matters into his own hands. Mm. At one point, he seizes Fort Gibraltar from Duncan Cameron, who's like the head of that fort. And then he uh, gives it back once Cameron promises to ease up on the attacks on the settlers. And then they seize it again in the spring of 1816. <laughs> But this time, uh, once they seize it, Robert Semple orders it destroyed. Oh, wow. So Fort Gibraltar is no more. Okay. And then the palisades from the fort were placed around Fort Douglas. <laughs> Jeez. Adding insult to injury. No kidding. So there is, like, increasing conflict between the Northwest Company, the Hudson's Bay Company, and the settlers. And at one point, Pegwis's son, who was unnamed in the story, is sort of out and about when he spots horse tracks on the prairies heading towards the River Settlement. Okay. And he rushes to inform Robertson of the news. He suspects it might be the work of Alexander McDonald, who is the cousin 
of Miles McDonald. Okay. Alexander works at the Northwest Company and has been pretty active in trying to destroy the settlement. So Pegwis and his son think that it might be sort of the Northwest Company coming in from, like, the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robertson goes to tell Semple, and Semple's like, eh, don't worry about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so Robertson quits. <gasps> okay. He leaves. All right. He starts prepping to re- leave Red River in May of 1816. Pegwis and a chief from Red Lake both try and convince him to stay. Because you said he was a little bit better liked. Hey? Yeah. Yeah. But he cannot deal with Semple anymore. Mm. So he leaves and like people do try and talk him into staying. Hmm. But he doesn't. And unfortunately this leaves only Robert Semple to try and manage the hostilities. Which he cannot do. He's a simple man. He's <laughs> Mr. Simple's at it again. So they send up they set up blockades, there's uh, brigades going around raiding supplies from settlers, and there's rumors of planned attacks on the settlement. Okay. Uh, and then several Ojibwe men pick up on these rumors and actually rush to go tell Semple. Uh, one of them is apparently named Mustache in one of the stories. Hmm. Uh, what Semple says basically is, whatever. What? And like brushes them off completely. Okay. So then uh, Pegwis and Yellowlegs both hear these rumors from their men and then also go to Semple and say like, you will defend the settlement. Do you need us to? Right. And Semple says, don't interfere. Hmm. Yep. So there are rumors of an incoming attack. Yeah. He has done nothing to prepare and done nothing to mediate. And been warned at least twice. <laughs> at least twice, if not more times. Well, maybe three, because there's the one where Pegwis' son comes in and says, like, oh, yeah. something is going on. So he's been warned three times, at least, mm-hmm. that something is afoot. And then on June 18th, 1816, Cuthbert Grant and a mix of 60 Métis, Freemen, First Nations people leave Portage La Prairie with um, 1,800 bundles of hemican to deliver to Northwest Company men. Okay. Uh, their plan was to deviate from their usual route and sneak around the fort mm-hmm. and uh, reach Frog Plain to, like, deliver it, basically. But they were spotted by a scout in Fort Douglas. Okay. Semple, in response, gathers 28 men in some muskets, which are largely described as useless, and they head out to meet the Métis in Frog Plain. And there's been arguments made that Semple might have been going to have a peace talk. With the muskets? Yeah, but it doesn't exactly square with the muskets. And what people knew about him, which is mm. that he was um, brash, impulsive, and not super willing to compromise. Okay. So, we're not totally clear at this point in time where Pegwis is. It's likely that they were at their camp in Kildonan again, so sort of watching the proceedings happen. So, it's Pegwis and, of course, Marie Lajamodier. Mm-hmm. And the Métis start setting up camp sort of in Frog Plains on June 19th when they spot Semple's party and begin to gather together. Semple, meanwhile, sends for the cannon from Fort, from the Fort. So he immediately goes for heavier weapons. It's not a great way to bring down the tensions, is it? No. Once all the forces are gathered together, someone fires. And in 15 minutes, 20 settlers are dead, including Semple. Oh, wow. Only one Métis man is killed in the skirmish, and the battle today has uh, two names. Uh, Victory at Frog Plain, Mm -hmm. or the Battle of Seven Oaks. Right. And the moment is considered to be kind of the birth of the Métis Nation. It's a moment hmm. where they all like gathered together to fight for this very common cause sure. as a political group with its own ideals and morals. And there have been a lot of debates on the Battle at Seven Oaks and the victory at Frog Plain. Yeah. Uh, who shot first? Who was the wronged party? And it all comes down to whose perspective you're hearing. Yeah, and I guess, you know, we can't hear from Semple about if he was trying to make peace or not because nope. he was no more. And, yeah, we can't really get the facts to clear any of this up anymore, right? hmm So, the Métis think they're at war. They don't have the same distinction between, like, wartime and peacetime that the Europeans are coming into it do. And 
we don't really know what Semple was trying to accomplish. We can't relitigate this. There's no way that the two of us are qualified to. We don't know nearly yeah. enough. And, like, we don't have the information. No one yeah. does. But what we do know is that there's some rumors that Peg was ordered his men to stay back and not interfere during the oh, initial conflict. Interesting. We don't know if this is true. Okay. What we do know, though, is that after the aftermath, uh, Pegwis and his men come and clear the bodies from the battlefield and actually bring them all back to Fort Douglas so they can have proper burials. Okay. Pegwis apparently carries Semple himself and uh, washed his body and wept for him as if he had been his only son. Wow. And then, after all of this, Cuthbert Grant orders the settlers to leave. Tells them to get out a second time. Okay. And they're packed up and gone by July of 1816. I mean, there can't have been that many left. No. Yeah. I don't know how many there were this time. Yeah. But Pegwis once again hosts them at Nitley Creek and then sends them up back to Norway House. Mm-hmm. They've made this journey twice now in the span of two years. I, w- I wouldn't come back, man. <laughs> no. Now, a day before the Battle of Seven Oaks, on June 18th, 1816, Lord Selkirk is leaving Montreal. <laughs> oh, no. Because <laughs> oh. travel times are a real nightmare back yeah. then. I don't want to say the poor guy, but like, <laughs> I don't think he knew what he was... Getting into. into no so he he knows the settlement is there and he is now heading towards it he's got the uh, desmiron regiment a uh, demiron regiment in front of him who he's hired to deal with the northwest company and one of these detachments is led by miles mcdonough he's back oh no <laughs> he's back okay he comes to red river before selkirk does once he sees what's happened and everyone's t- thrilled to see him. <laughs> he doesn't even stay for very long it seems like he gets there sees what happened and makes kind of like a u-turn oh and heads back <laughs> Because he's ahead of Selkirk, and he meets them at uh, Selkirk's camp in Sault Ste. Marie. Mm-hmm. And lets them know, is sort of, like, gives them the rundown of what's happened. And Selkirk begins to send his men out to take over Northwest Company forts, including Fort Dare. So there's sort of, like, a slow incursion onto Northwest Company territory, okay. finally. And incredibly, we actually do have an account of what happens next from a, pe- from a speech Pegwis gave. Okay. Many, many years later. So we are in uh, 1817 at this point, or nearing it. Uh, Pegwis gave the speech in 1863, a year before his death. So I'll be interspersing the speech with um, interviews and like whatever else we have. But Alex, I sent you the speech. Okay. This is uh, the whole thing from Pegwis's perspective. All right. Cool. It's not often we get a, a primary source that's kind of that thorough and specific. Oh, I know. It's exciting. Nice. <laughs> okay. As soon as the fighting was over, the report came that Lord Selkirk had arrived at Fort William. The ensuing winter I called together all the Indians round here, those at Red Lake, at the Manitoba, and at the mouth of the Red River. I also invited the Crees on the upper Assiniboine. Come, said I, assemble here, come and listen. This great man cannot be coming for nothing. A large multitude had gathered here early in the spring, when the Earl arrived with thirty canoes. The day after he arrived, about noon, he sent for us. There were many of us, and we left our tents at his call, and marched to the place of conference. There lay before us tobacco. Um, He said, friends, I salute you. Immediately after the salutants, a day was held for a council. Two personages were appointed to meet us. On the day named, one great man arrived, the other did not. He said, let us do without him who did not come. But the other soon came. The great man I think he's referring to here is William Bachelor Coltman, who was in Red River to hear stories of the Battle of Seven Oaks and... He's the one who asked to meet with all of the leaders on Selkirk's behalf. And what they start talking about pretty quickly afterwards is how they want two miles on the side of the river either way. But there's a bit of a puzzle on how to measure it. Wait, who wants two sides? Selkirk does for the settlers. Okay. I mean, that's a big ask to be yeah. like, we want all the river land. Yes. Yeah. 
But also, how would you measure that? Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Okay. Uh, luckily, uh, Alan Sutherland told me about how they measured that. Oh. And uh, the other ways people have tried. Some were successful than others. No, but the story, the oral tradition was, how they determine that distance? And it was mm-hmm. hard back in those earlier days to determine how much land do you want. So in Toronto, they had a, they had a confusion going on there. So uh, they call it a shotgun treaty. As, a, as far as the so- sound of a shotgun can go, that's as far as you go. <laughs> somebody says, well, let's do this in the wintertime because the sound travels further. <laughs> yeah. And then somebody says, well, let's use my gun. It's louder than anybody's. <laughs> Next thing you know, they says, let's use a cannon. Oh, well, <laughs> so that was confusing. And this later on, they, in other trees, they would actually lose existing landmarks. Mm-hmm. But at that time, they brought in a horse. And they line up the horse along the red river. And he says, as far as my eyes could see under the belly of the horse is as far as you can go, which ends okay. up being two miles. So that is how they figure out the two-mile thing. Okay. I, I like the idea of the how far you can hear the shotgun. Yeah. That's funny. So it's as far as you can see the belly of the horse. Yeah. Once it sort of starts disappearing. I think I so, yeah. Yeah. Which is an interesting metric. in. You can still kind of see the impact of that two-mile thing today. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were talking to Nigan Sinclair, he talks about that a little bit. So, Alex, do you want to uh, kick us off again? All right. As soon as we had taken our seats, he said, Friends, I have come to ask you about the lands, if you will give them to me. I do not want much. Give what you choose. Will you give me from as far from the river as you can distinguish the belly of a horse? It is to put settlers, people far off who have misery in their own country, This is why I want it. They will not trespass upon or spoil your lands that you retain outside of the limits I have named. I wish to put inhabitants upon it to cultivate the soil. I will endeavor to make the country like my own country. If I succeed and accomplish what I attend, what I intend, there will be merchants and traders from end of the settlement to the other, who will furnish you with goods. They will be a little distance from each other, and you will have a chance of seeking out the best places for trading. All this I will do if we can arrange the land. There were five chiefs. I represented this district, the other districts. The earl said to me, speak, you first. How much land will you give me? I said, I will speak last. Let the others speak before me. Kichiorua, Grand Court Orsel, uh, spoke first. He mentioned Riviere Orozo. The earl made no reply to this, whereupon the chief mentioned as far as Pemina. The chief said, yes. Then he appealed to Le Grand Noir and asked what he would give. He said from Pemina to Red Lake. Then he turned to La Rabe Noir, who said as far as Portage la Prairie. At this, the gentlemen hummed among, hummed among themselves for a little. And the end was a question from the Earl. Is there no stream about there uh, which you mention as a limit? The Grand Noir mentioned, yes, there is La Rivière Champignon a little beyond. The Earl said, there, that will be the limit. Then he asked Senna, the Cree chief, who said, No, I do not want agriculturalists. I want only traders. The earl said, Do you think you will ever see your trader again, referring to the Northwest Company? Never. He has done a bad thing. He has killed people. The earl added, Then do you not wish to get a load of powder, a knife, or a steel from settlers? Well, work diligently at the furs, and you will find a trader, meaning the HB Company. 
The nobleman then said to me, your turn, speak. I said, this is my place. How much will you give me for the part between this and the rapids? I will then go below that. He said, a little further down, if you will. I replied, yes, I will give you the bend, you to the bend of the river above Sugar Point. This point I like very much. I cannot part with it. It is for my children. This satisfied the earl, and he said further, fear not. The people I plant here will not trouble your wild animals. They, were merely, they will merely work the soil. If they pass beyond the two miles limit, do not allow them. They have no right there. At present, we cannot conclude the arrangement, for I have nothing to pay you with. Let us leave the matter as it stands. I will come back, and then we will close the negotiations. I am in a hurry and cannot remain longer, but I will be sure to return. I want to go to the States to get cattle that we may eat. That is the meat we eat. Perhaps you may desire to get some of our cattle when you see them with the inhabitants here. But before I leave, I would like to give you something in consideration of the arrangement which is to be made when I come back. What would you like to have? I said, powder is useful to the Indians, and tobacco they like, rum too they would have. We got what we asked. When we were done speaking, the Earl said, I want you to put your names to a paper to show in England what we propose to do. We all said no. Wait till you come back. He asked us again to sign, but we refused, saying it would be time enough when the arrangement was completed. The Earl said, if your names were down, it would be easier for me to conclude the affair when I get back. Besides, your young men would see in the event of your deaths what you had proposed to do. So we consented. Our names and marks were put down. So by marks, they mean uh, their dodams, which we'll hear about in a second. In, a sen- in essence, what they're promising here is two miles of like stretches of land on the Red and the Cinnaboyne rivers that go up and down past the forks in exchange for 100 pounds of tobacco per year. Mm-hmm. Uh, five chiefs signed the treaty, Penguis, uh, Mosh, uh, Lesinant, um, La Robe Noir, La Grand Noir, and then um, Premier, Arawakadot. And I think it's worth it to talk about intention here, because perspectives on land use is very different. And then sure. I have Negan Sinclair talking about that here. When Lord Selkirk um, signed the Selkirk Treaty, uh, he very much imposed a sense of ownership uh, on the land, much similarly to what happened in 1763 when King George III uh, looked out on North America, had just defeated the French in a great war called the Seven Years' War. And the uh, King George III looked out on the land of North America and said, everything is now mine, I declare it. And he, he made a famous royal proclamation, which said that all the land is mine. And he said that, you know, people can live on those lands, which are my lands, but they can sell the land or their rights to that land, or what's often now referred to as title, they can sell the title to that land to me um, when I arrive. In fact, there's no choice. They have to sell it to me at a price of my declaration. Um, so it wasn't exactly like the way we would think of title. It would be title only according to how the king recognizes title. And this will be the bat this will be the subject of hundreds of Supreme Court battles over the next uh, you know 500 years or so, um, or you know 300 and 250 years anyways. And so we've got a we've you know, uh, indigenous land title is much different than that. Of course, we don't have a sense of ownership in the same way. And so when Lord Selkirk imposed on the Selkirk Treaty to say, well, all this land two miles on the side of the river is all mine or ours, non-indigenous peoples, Pegwis didn't think of things that way. And evidence of that is in the fact that on the Selkirk Treaty, right beside Selkirk's signature, 
are the dodems, the, the clan signatures. Mm -hmm. And those clan signatures are the recognition of Indigenous peoples, Anishinaabe and Cree peoples, which is to say that the land is not about us as humans, it's about the animals. It's about the, uh, there's five different beings as written on that treaty. The first is a bear. Uh, so he's talking about the, the rocks there. When he, there's a Martin, which is Chief Pegasus signature, and uh, and though he's talking about the trees there, uh, when he's talking about the two fish, uh, he's talking about the water. And then he's finally, the last image is a snake or a lizard. And uh, you can see two little legs there. That's why it might not might not quite be a snake, but it could be one of those snakes that actually existed in Manitoba, which was one of the few lizards that had looked like a snake with legs. Hmm. Uh, does doesn't exist as much anymore now, but but um, it and what that's talking about is the land. So what in those signatures, what Chief Pegasus was doing was saying to Lord Selkirk that this treaty is more than just about us. It's about how do we share the land, not just between human beings, indigenous and non-indigenous peoples, but how do we share the land with the with the bears, with the martins, with the fish, with the snakes, with the lizards. How do we share that land together? meaning that we all benefit from this place. It's not about saying that's mine and this is yours. It's saying this is all of ours. And how do we share and live together in a reciprocal, meaningful way? And then the tobacco payment not seem like might not seem like a whole lot, but Sutherland talks a bit about how important that is too. And they said this agreement will be renewed every 20 years or 21 years. All they're just asking, and this is what people don't understand, the, the importance of the tobacco is sure it was it was used as a, as a luxury but it's primarily used ceremonies mm -hmm. to pray and they uh, i forgot the amount they were giving but they're gonna give a hundred pounds i think to each each band every year so for a while there all you have to do is go to any local hudson bay company and receive that every year as a as saying, I'm honoring. This is the original land acknowledgement, by the way. I'm honoring you, land acknowledgement, by giving you this. And over time, that kind of payment stopped for the other bands. Who was getting it? Of course, his lord is Pegasus. And you know, he says there too, like, you know, I'm not paying you yet. I'm gonna come back with more things. Yeah. So there's a bit of the speech left that's like Pegasus in retrospect coming mm -hmm. back to it. But a few days after they signed this. Uh, all of the men involved realized they hadn't left any river frontage for themselves. Oh, okay. And they go to Selkirk to have that change. to be like, we want access to the river. Yeah, of course. Uh, there is probably a reason they didn't think about it at first. They might have been thinking predominantly about the bison. Oh, I see. Yeah. Like, they were more worried about keeping the land past the river where the bison is. Mm -hmm. And then after it's like, oh, no, we also need that. Yeah. So they do actually have it changed. And then these sort of boundaries are established, and some people do start to enforce them pretty harshly. And there was one story where, where uh, this farmer just outside the boundaries was cutting hay, making hay for himself to bring to inside inside the Lord Selkirk Agreement's boundaries, but was uh, was found out by the, the Cree people, the, these Cree men, and they were, and he basically you know threatening him. You you drop everything, go back where you are or we're going to take your life. Now, Pegasus found out about this, so he came He came as quickly as he can to defend that farmer. He didn't want this situation to be overblown, even though they had a right to take his life. 
we're disobeying. So that was the argument. You breached this agreement, you know, he's going to have to give us something. And, and they would say, no, no, no. They're going to be okay now. They're, they now know. Just leave them alone. And they weren't going to let it go. So he took off his modern clothes, his colonial clothes, and he went into, you know, just the same, uh, I guess, attire of, of the Cree men. And he had his knife. All right, then, let's settle this then, knowing full well the threat is on. In other words, you got to go through me. And they wanted anything to do it because he was known as a, as a, he was known as a warrior. And he's known, you know, he when he gives his word, he's going to mean it. You know, so, yeah, they back down really quick. So what happens after this treaty is signed is that Selkirk leaves Red River. Interesting. So I feel like having just read that, it, it almost, like, I understand it goes wrong, but it feels sort of like a breath of fresh air, right? right. After, like, all these people coming in just sort of declaring right. that they own the place. He comes in and he's like, listen, there are these people who can't go back to where they're yeah. from. Can you please give me something? And yes. they're like, you know what? We can deal with that. Yeah. And they... They don't initially. They don't think of it as them signing the treaty yet. They've signed kind of like a pre-agreement, essentially, sure. is what they think has happened. But a memorandum of understanding, <laughs> basically, for my union stewards out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Selkirk uh, gives Pegwis a medal with the Hudson's Bay Company crest and a picture of George the Third on it. He also gives him a letter calling him a steady friend. Hmm. And then Selkirk heads back, and this is his last and only visit to Red River. He dies in eighteen twenty. Okay. So the colony's been established, the plots are being measured out, and it turns out not everyone knew what was going on exactly. Do you want to read that last little bit of the speech there, Alex? Yeah. We did not see why he pressed us to sign, but I now think it was in order to have us in his power, should he not do what he promised. Lord Selkirk did not tell us what was in the paper, and I regret to say we did not even ask him what was in it. That was our ignorance. It was a great mistake, as after events showed Lord Selkirk never came back and never completed the arrangements about the lands. Our lands have not been bought from us. We have not received payment from, for them. We got some things from, from time to time, small supplies, but less and less as time rolled along until we got nothing. Yeah, it's a yeah. bummer. It's not great. And essentially what happens after this is that Selkirk and the settlers in the Hudson's Bay Company now have what they see as legal title to the land. Right. It is now theirs and not something they are sharing. And, okay, so, I mean, you had, you had said talking about kind of intent here with Lord Selkirk. I know you said he died. Obviously, you can't come back if you die. Do you think he intended to come back? I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with what he got up to once he left Red River. Yeah. But I would almost guess no. Because this feels a little like he kind of tricked them or wheedled them into yeah. signing something he, that he, has he just wanted to paper. be done with. Yeah. yeah. And then he gets to go home and yeah. stop dealing with this like colony of his that keeps causing problems. Right. So and what essentially happens is things get worse. Because now the Hudson's Bay Company and the settlers think they are entitled to be there. Oh. Whereas they have in the past been playing fairly nice. Right. Because they have to. They need these people to help them survive. Yeah. Once they're sort of established, they don't have to play by people's rules anymore. Oh, and I guess they've been already kind of shown the things they need to be shown as well. Yeah. Things like hunting in the area and how to dress. and. So um, there's a bit from Anigan Sinclair talking about sort of the Hudson's Bay Company's xenophobia. Mm-hmm. The Hudson Bay Company uh, is one of the most xenophobic communities or, or companies. Uh, you could not have been more xenophobic uh, 
than the Hudson Bay Company, who did things like ban Indigenous languages, ban traders from entering into Indigenous communities, even marrying into those communities. These are standard practices amongst Indigenous peoples. Like Indigenous peoples are not, I know this is going to shock you, but Indigenous peoples are not uh, heterocentric, uh, monogamous, uh, Christian-based Victorian ideals. You know, we are peoples who often marry multiply. Um, we have, uh, you know, so the, the chance to have a, a Western trader who would be able to bring metal and other goods to our families, you would obviously have one of your nieces marry them. <laughs> because uh, in addition to the fact that she's maybe married to somebody else, she would marry that fur, that fur trader so that you know, we would have access to goods. And that fur trader may have multiple wives, which in our worlds would not have been an issue. Uh, it would have been something about you commit to our lives and our community and our culture when you are here. But when you're out there, we want you to think of us. And that's why marriage is so important. But, you know, if you go spend time over there too, we're not going to be freaking out about it and melting down. And so um, these are really important things to understand that this, the Hudson Bay Company rejected all of that. The Hudson Bay Company also rejected the idea of gift giving, which is the most essential idea of how you enter Indigenous communities, which is when you show up in a community, you bring a gift, you bring tobacco, you bring a little bit of food, you bring your name, you bring a story. And what the Hudson Bay Company said is that we will refuse to give gifts, particularly money, that we will not recognize that Indigenous peoples expect gifts when we come into their communities. You know, gift giving is something that humans do. It's not just an Indigenous thing. It's also when you show up at your auntie's house, you bring you bring a pie or you, you bring them some coffee or you bring them, a, you know, a meal of some kind. Uh, that's what the, the currency of Manitoba is. But the Hudson Bay Company uh, was built on the idea that Indians are not human beings so much that uh, even denied the basic principles of humanity from them. So basically, because the Hudson's Bay Company is now sort of stopping all of these basic considerations they would have extended before, like gift giving, like talking to people, <laughs> any sort of reciprocal agreement or relationship yeah. is now like, if we can get out of doing that, we're going to stop helping. That radical method, talking to people. Yep. And like, if they were feeling, if the Ojibwe were feeling doubts at first about the HBC's loyal to them, it's cemented when they start inviting uh, Lakota, Dakota, Nakota people into the settlement. Mm-hmm. These are the people that the Ojibwe have been fighting to keep out for years. That, that's been their whole thing. That's why they were invited in the first place. And the company justifies it as like a, we need to ensure settler safety by befriending them as well, but that's not how those alliances work. Right. Right? The way the Ojibwe saw it was that they were sort of a united front, and now mm -hmm. they're openly letting this enemy that they've been at war with for genuinely hundreds of years yeah. come into their territory. So when the Ojibwe see groups of... A Dakota coming to the forts, they start to pester the groups to scare them off. Even Cuthbert Grant and the Métis see this as a threat. Hmm. So they actually grab their weapons and rush to the fort's defense, only to have the fort officials mock them for trying. Wow. So they bring in Dakota delegations in 1817, 1819, 1820, and 1821, and very rarely do they go well. Okay. Three Ojibwe are killed in a clash in 1817, and in 1819, the Ojibwe steal their horses. And then, as if uh, the smallpox earlier wasn't enough, um, a whooping cough and measles epidemic starts oh, to no. spread in 1819 and 1820. The Ojibwe were not affected as badly as the Cree and the Lakota. Somewhere between 25 to 40% of their men died. Wow. Oh, God. That's so many. 
there were deaths among the Ojibwe at the Forks and on the eastern side of Lake Winnipeg, but we don't actually have those numbers. So the epidemic slows down trade, and the Ojibwe begin to pull back from the fur trade as well. By the spring of 1820, the Ojibwe near Dauphin River are using the dry provisions for sugar instead of furs. Hmm. So they've, like, completely shifted right. some of their trade methods here. Penguins, meanwhile, was still regularly visiting Red River. And he would travel by canoe down the Red River and pop by to visit people as he went. And once again, there was always something new happening at this point. There's more and more settlers coming in. So there's now like Swiss, German, French, and Italian people coming to the area. Mm -hmm. And then in 1818, the Red River Settlement receives its first missionary. Okay. This is uh, Joseph Norbert Provence. Oh. He arrives- Also of street fame. Of street fame. A lot of these people are of street fame, I think. (laughs) Uh, he settles in St. Boniface, and he uh, didn't want to come here at first. Oh, no. <laughs> Apparently, um, when he was given the appointment, he didn't. He objected, saying he didn't have the knowledge, he had no ability to speak English, he had a painful hernia, and an outstanding debt of 250 pounds. That's, <laughs> That's so many reasons. And they still made him come? They still made him come. Uh, and he establishes um, a mission in St. B. Okay. Uh, their goals were... Uh, so the goals, according to a uh, Bishop Plessy's instructions, were to convert the Indian nations scattered across the vast country and to care for the delinquent Christians who have adopted uh, there the customs of the Indians. Okay. So they're coming here with pretty explicitly colonial goals. Yeah. Which is how that's all going to go sure. for every every missionary group that comes to Red River. I mean, that's, you know, that's what missionaries are. Yeah. Fine. So... We're going to jump ahead of it to the fall of 1820. It's a cold October morning. Pegwis is in Netley Creek with his family and his band, and they have a visitor. It is a small Englishman paddling into town. He introduces himself as Reverend John West. Okay. A Protestant missionary coming to Red River to establish a school to educate indigenous children. Uh-oh. Yeah. So Pegwis welcomes them to camp, and they talk of apparently the uncleared stumps of brushwood. Oh. <laughs> and then also Lord Selkirk's recent death. And then... In the boldest move of all time, West immediately asked Pegwis if he would like to send his kid to West's school. Hmm. He's like, I'm just, I'm a strange man who's just arrived in a canoe. I'm not with- from here. Yeah. I know nothing about you. Can I have your children, please? Uh, Pegwis says no. But yeah, but well, yeah, yeah, good. And then West heads further south to Red River, spots all of the, like, clusters of small houses and he f- notices a unfurnished building that's the sort of functioning Catholic church across the river. So that's where Provence is. Mm-hmm. West has a hard time fitting in. Okay. The Scots don't like him because he doesn't speak Gaelic. Okay. The fur traders don't want English customs forced upon them at all. Okay. They've sort of adjusted to a very different set of social rules. Sure. And the indigenous people don't really buy into the pitches that he's giving of like, I can improve your way of life if you give me your children. No, that's weird. Don't come into places where you don't know anyone and start asking people for their children. So, like, he's not making a lot of friends. But uh, he starts building a a school and a church where the present-day St. John's Cathedral sits. And then in the following winter, Pegwis meets West once again. This time he gives him some dried surgeon. And then West and Pegwis continue to sort of talk off and on for years. And most of their arrangements seem like West will come in and be like, can I have your kids this time? <laughs> and then Peg was sizzling the fact of, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it gets a little less weird now that he's actually got a school, I'll say. But it's weirder the longer he tries. It, it is. There's a flip side to it where Pegasus will come to visit him and say, like, hey, I, like, need help with this. Yeah. 
Also, I don't agree with most of your viewpoints. Oh. These two didn't really seem to get along. Yeah. They would, like, work together, but every time West is like, Pegwis came to visit me, here's all the things he told me he didn't like about me. <laughs> Pegwis seems like someone who was willing to sort of get along with people who he didn't agree with. Who he needed with. to, hey. yeah. So, on a much higher level, after years of feuding, the Northwest Company is starting to run out of money by 1821. They're faltering oh, yeah. a little. And the Hudson's Bay Company swoops in and buys them out mm-hmm. in kind of a hostile takeover. So in 1821, the conflict between the two companies, the conflict between the two companies stops in Red River finally, and it gives the Hudson's Bay Company a monopoly. Yeah, they appoint uh, Governor George Simpson to the area, and we'll hear more about him the next time. Yep. <laughs> and uh, the Red River of 1821 is predominantly Métis. There's 12,400 residents across 24 parishes, 9,900 Métis people, 1,000 First Nations, and 1,500 Europeans. And now a handful of missionaries slowly coming in across the 1820s. Hmm. Uh, This merger causes a pretty considerable loss of employment for the Ojibwe, Métis, and Freeman, and a rise in prices. Oh, yeah. And additionally, there is now um, the Council of Assiniboia founded to impose laws, Mm -hmm. notably European laws in the plains that, like, don't know about these laws and don't particularly care about them. Mm -hmm. This brings in a legal system, policing, and a militia. Members of the council are all members of the Hudson's Bay Company. Mm -hmm. They're all loyal to the HBC. And the HBC starts imposing uh, tight credit limitations on, like, what's being traded at the forks and what they're willing to give. And they start pushing the Ojibwe to the back of the line. Oh, okay. And they stop giving ceremonial gifts. Hmm. So what happens for a lot of... Sort of the people that signed the Selkirk Treaty is that the gifts stop pretty quickly. Pegwis gets them a bit more consistently for longer, but he is around the most often. Right. Because he's in the area the most. So uh, some of the Ojibwe are pretty unhappy with how things are developing, and they start blocking uh, passageways. They set fire to the plains to keep the bison away from the river. Hmm. And at one point, they arrive at the company's fort, and the forks with their faces painted black as a like symbol that their relationship is dead. Wow. And in the area on the Forks, we have the settlement of Red River. Mm-hmm. We've got um, a new church, now St. John's Anglican Church, founded by John West in 1812. And in the fall of 18... or God. Uh, founded by John West in 1822. Okay. We went back a whole decade there. <laughs> uh, in the fall of 1822, Pegwa sees West, West once again. And this time, West comes bearing a proposition. Guess what it is? Is it to take his children? <laughs> yes! <sighs> he asked for... He asked for two. He asked for Pegwis to speak to families in the community about educating their children, and then asked to have two of Pegwis's kids, mm. and tries to spin it to Pegwis as an act of love for them. Okay. Um, Pegwis says he might consider sending two of his kids to the school in spring, but first he has a question: What would he do with the children after they were after they were educated? Okay. And Wes's answer is: I told them they might return to their parents if they wished. But my hope is that they would see the advantage of making gardens and cultivating the soil. Oh. So as to not be exposed to the hunger and starvation as the Indians generally were. Oh, boy. He also tries to promise uh, clothing and feeding their children. And then he also tries to slide in a thing being like, also, men only have one wife. And then Peg was... (laughs) So, So he's like, so your family sucks. You're poor. You're starving. Your kids are uneducated. Yeah. Uh, send them to me <laughs> basically and then um when Wes makes the comment about only having one spouse peg Wes basically says like get the fur traders to stop doing that first yeah <laughs> interesting 
So, like, because West is bad at making friends, he does uh, get fired eventually. I mean, that like, that's that's a wild way to approach someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's not great at it. So, like, at different points, Pegwis does come to West for, like, food. Mm-hmm. When the band is, like, running low on gardens and stuff like that. And West does agree to, like, feed them, but then writes in his journal being like, oh, how dare they? <laughs> As if they haven't, like, fed him every time he's come right. by to visit. Yeah. With one of his, like, insane demands. <laughs> and haven't kicked him out every time he's asked for He also wrote in his again. journal complaining that, like, whenever he goes to visit, they're just relaxing. And, like, part of what that is is that they've chosen to conserve energy where they can. Like, they get their yeah. work done and then they can just, like, hang around. And he's yeah. like, why aren't they miserable and farming like us? <laughs> so he gets fired in 1823. Well... So that's uh, the founder of the first church, okay. the first Anglican church in Red River. Hmm. And that's kind of where we're going to be leaving off. We've got okay. a settlement. We've got a school. We've got a growing population. And most of the indigenous people have been slowly forced out. Okay. Deliberately, to be clear. So I'm going to talk a little bit quickly about um, Pegwis's later life. We can't do sort of ever. He lived to 90 years old. Oh, wow. That man okay. had a long and full life. And yep. there's a whole other thing going on in the 1830s where he's like, Talking to different reverends and stuff. So that's, um, I think, a story for another time. Sure. But eventually, in 1838, he does agree to convert to Christianity. Hmm. He adopts the name William King, and his sons take the surname Prince. Not all of his sons convert. Some actually, like, staunchly refuse to. Hmm. And uh, one of his wives converts okay. and becomes his, like, legal Christian wife. Hmm. But then he spends a lot of the rest of his life trying to talk to the Hudson's Bay Company and protesting what he sees as violations of that treaty. Wow. So he, like, writes to the Queen and the King. He's writing to, like, advocate societies in England. And then in 1863, he gives that speech to the people at Red River. Uh, when he comes to town that year, everyone notes that it's, like, odd. He's come out so far. He is, at this point, in his 90s. Wow. And he tells everyone about his perspective on that treaty. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very cool that we got to hear that today. Yeah. Uh, but this is sort of the state of Red River at this point. Pegwis is back at Netley Creek. He's fending off reverence <laughs> left and right. And there is kind of a town now run by the Hudson's Bay Company. And we're going to hear a bit about how that town developed and grew and a sort of schism in the colony next time. Yeah, well, next one's our scandal episode, it? Isn't is. It? Yeah. It's uh, Sarah Balandin and the Foss Pelly scandal. Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah, it's a fun one. So I've covered um, a lot of ground in this episode, so if you want to check things out for yourself, uh, you can check out Donna Sutherland's book, Pegwis, A Noble Friend, The Ojibwe of Western Canada by Laura Pierce, and The Northwest is Our Mother by Jean Tellier. These are the main sources I use for the episode, and they're all worth checking out. Uh, thanks too much for uh, Nigan and Alan for speaking with us. It was greatly appreciated. You can check up or check out a write-up uh, for this episode in the Winnipeg Free Press, and we want to thank the Manitoba Historical Society for their support. If you want to support us, you can check us out on social media, One Great History on Facebook and Instagram, and number One Great History on Twitter. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash One Great History. We've all got uh, fun bonus episodes, post-episode discussions of these, so mm-hmm. if you want to hear Alex and I talk about sources, yeah, everyone's favorite thing. <laughs> and sometimes, like, the things we didn't have time for. Yeah. Uh, and we'll also be sharing our interviews with Nigan and Alan at no cost, because yeah. we covered a lot of ground in those two that we couldn't fit in. They're worth checking out. And if you want to see our sources or any pictures, you can check us out at onegradehistory.wordpress.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.